Friends, ladies and gentlemen, and those of you who are not grooving with the Led Zeppelin. I couldn't help but notice as we were standing outside the hall, waiting to come in and deliver this talk, the obvious difference between our young people and those who are paying some outlandish price to go in and listen to the message of drugs and revolution that will be delivered on their behalf by this so-called rock group. We invited a couple of them in, but they didn't seem too interested. In the background to what we have today, Dr. Bella Dodd, who for a number of years was a member of the Communist Party in New York City, ran for public office under the sponsorship of the party, was active in various educational circles as a party member. Dr. Belladad points out, or did before her untimely death, that the communist movement in America became interested in destroying the local police constabulary as early as the 1930s in this country. Other former communists, Manning Johnson, Leonard Patterson, Joseph Kornfetter, all said precisely the same thing. In fact, Leonard Patterson told me in a conversation I had with that gentleman while he was here participating in a civil rights seminar some years back, that one of the most important positions driven home to all students at the Lenin School for Political Warfare to which he attended was the discrediting of the concept of local police forces. And then, of course, in the background of the various successful communist revolutions in various parts of the world, we're seeing that whenever the revolution moves into high gear, one of the first and certainly one of the most important institutions that comes under attack is the whole idea of local police forces. It was true particularly in Spain during the communist revolution in that country in the late 1930s. In June of 1961, however, a Mr. Fitzpatrick of the CIA gave testimony before the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee of our, uh, of our United States Congress, and that testimony was entitled, The Communist Plot Against Free World Police. And in it, Mr. Fitzpatrick pointed out that the whole of the international communist conspiracy working in whatever country directs an undue portion amount of their time and effort into the discrediting the hampering, the hindering, and the eventual handcuffing of local law enforcement officers. If you have not read that particular report by the Senate Committee, I urge you to do so, particularly in light of the recent street revolution and what we can expect more of in the future. In this particular testimony, Mr. Fitzpatrick offered as in evidence before the committee various schematics on how the revolutionary street movement would handle tactically the police forces that were trying to hinder their particular activities, how they would skirt a police phalanx <coughs> to render it impotent. So the American people have had a great deal of warning as it relates to this attack, but like so many other warnings sounded by the patriots I have mentioned and others, by and large they have gone unheeded. In 1960, we saw the first major attempts in a national drive 
to enforce the Civilian Police Review Board concept on most of the major cities in this country. By 1960, the so-called Civil Rights Revolution had gained enough momentum, and there was enough of the civil disobedience activities being perpetrated in various parts of the country so that those in the streets could cry police brutality at any officer or officers who attempted to hinder their illegal activities. The first major police review board imposed on a city of any size came in Philadelphia as early as 1958. And of course it proved to be a dismal failure. Not only is it related to establishing public confidence, but more importantly, it did precisely what the comrades and those good people whom they can always dupe into doing their shouting and their dirty work for them, it did precisely what the comrades intended it to do. It so hindered effective law enforcement in the city of Philadelphia that after one year of a civilian police review board, Philadelphia stood almost alone in the major city category of capital crime. Then, of course, in New York, Mayor John Lindsay ran on a platform of establishing a civilian police review board, which was one of the first things he did do upon being elected mayor of that city. And immediately, police officers started to leave the force. New York's finest was under attack from every quarter. Not only were they under attack from the hoodlums, the revolutionaries, and the thugs in the street, but the attack that caused them the most problems and the one that did the biggest damage was that attack being directed right out of City Hall by his honor, Mayor Lindsay. And so, in the face of this established Civilian Police Review Board, members of the John Burt Society and other interested citizens put together a petition to have that review board repealed. It went to a vote of the citizens of that city and it was overwhelmingly rejected. Now this served to generally break the back of what we would call the frontal attack or the civilian police review board attack on local polices. Probably one of the men who was most instrumental in lending his credentials to helping defeat this whole concept was Director J. Edgar Hoover of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, who spoke out continuously and tirelessly on the dangers of politically inspired civilian police review boards. But this was just the opening phase, act one, scene one, really. The civilian police review board concept, as stated per se, was now an utter failure. And with the defeat of John Lindsay's civilian police review board in New York, it appeared, for a time anyway, that that whole concept was crumbling and that the American people had rallied in time to save their local police forces from destruction and dismantling. But the communist conspiracy in this particular instance, as in so many others, anticipated this temporary setback and immediately undertook steps to drive ahead in what would have to be a far more insidious and eventually far more effective, from their standpoint, drive than even the one that had previously been discredited. Remember that by 1965, most Americans sat stunned at Watts and Harlem and Newark. Things that we believed could never happen here had already happened here. 
one major city after another, from one end of the country to the other, had at one time or another been put to the torch to some degree. The revolution was on in full swing. At this time, it was being called a civil rights revolution. And of course, the cries of police brutality were continually heard even after the charge had been so thoroughly discredited. Next came the campus revolution, the generation gap revolution, the revolution that produces the new barbarians that strolled by this auditorium tonight, drug-crazed kids being turned out into the streets for cannon fodder to protest against, really, they don't know what, but to protest. And at the same time, while all this was either going on or just getting started, American Opinion Magazine ran an article by Mr. Gary Allen called The Plan. And in it, Gary Allen outlined a plan confiscated by Los Angeles police intelligence. This was after the Watts riots now. A plan that would eventually make it unsafe for any police officer in the country to try and an attempt to do his duty. The plan called for such nefarious schemes as snipers sitting across from police call boxes. It also called for the cry wolf help call, where police officers would go to a home in a particular segment of the city answering what they thought was a call for help, only to meet a shotgun in the face when they reached the front door. To be sniped down while they patrolled in their cars. And then there was a new slogan being coined across the country called, Kill a Pig a Day. This one was the rhetorical put-together of the Black Panthers in Oakland. Last weekend, 12 police officers were shot down at call boxes, answering calls, or while patrolling in their, their uh, squad cars in New York, Philadelphia, and Los Angeles. The plan that Gary Allen talked about three years ago is in full swing today. Ask yourself, if you were a police officer, how would you view the present situation? And then, of course, there was the Chicago police riot. You remember the Democrat National Convention of 1968 where after days of unbelievable harassment, being bombarded with nail-studded baseballs and human excrement, the Chicago police force stood its ground. And then after being charged, they attempted to restore some semblance of law and order. And the media called it a police riot. We listened to Walter Cronkite, Huntley Brinkley, Howard K. Smith, Edward P. Morgan, call it a police riot. And then there was the Walker Report, another one of these specially appointed commissions to come out and investigate the police riot. And as Alan Stang pointed out so brilliantly in his analyses of the Walker Report, the first use of the phrase police riot was used by Mr. Abby Hoffman in February of 1968 some six months or more before the Chicago Democrat Convention. 
Ladies and gentlemen, if I were going to place one large measure of blame on one segment of America over all others for what has happened and what is happening to our local police force, it would have to be the national news media. They have consistently, consistently and without interruption, almost to the point where you'd think they'd become embarrassed and put in a, a little on the policeman's side just for protective coloration, but no, they have consistently depicted the law enforcement officers in every city of this country as a bunch of brutal, bloodthirsty pigs who get their jolly socking kids around in the street. They consistently equate the police department and the Black Panthers, for example. The constant equation. The police chief says this, the leader of the Panthers says this, as though there were some debate going on, and we are supposed to be impartial referees between Bobby Seals and the police chiefs of the various towns across the country. And anybody who has done their homework knows that the Abby Hoffmans, the Jerry Rubens, the David Dellingers, and all the rest in every instance they turn them into the streets are looking for one thing, an opportunity to provoke the police, an opportunity to bring about the reaction they desire, an opportunity to scream repression. And so the American people slowly but surely started to awaken to the fact that their police departments were under direct and immediate assault and started to demand immediate action. And they got it the Law Enforcement Assistance Act of 1965 and the creation of the Law Enforcement Assistance Agency and the carrot and next the stick. Today we have to look far and wide to find a politician, regardless of party or philosophical persuasion, who doesn't come out forthrightly for the support of police officers. The question, ladies and gentlemen, is what kind of support? There isn't a police department in the country, no matter how big or small, that isn't today being offered a federal subsidy to strengthen, make more efficient, modernize, update, train their local law enforcement officers. And I put all those words in quotes. The carrot in this instance amounted to $400 million for fiscal years 1968, 69, and 70 to be rationed out to the states if they apply for it, of course. The federal administration makes grants to the states out of these funds, but only if the state has submitted a comprehensive plan approved by the federal government. The act requires that the states must submit a new plan each year. And some of the things necessary to qualify for these federal funds are crime prevention councils called for under this act, which create a term heretofore never found in American jurisprudence. The powers, qualifications, and identities of these mysterious councilmen are not spelled out, except to say that they shall, quote, be knowledgeable in the prevention and control of organized crime, end quote. This means practically anybody, including an Al Capone or a John Dillinger, would qualify. 
Community service officers are also a part of this act. Grievance resolution mechanisms. That's a new euphemistic term for civilian police review board. Community patrol activities drawn from the indigenous populations. In case you don't understand the bureaucratese, it interprets this way. The Black Panthers will provide community control for the Negro areas of every large city. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are getting a lot of action on the federal level because people are concerned. The Law Enforcement Assistance Agency is working overtime to bring us law and order with its guidelines, of course, which is in keeping with the tactics and the strategies and the law. Never forget, whether you're talking about federal subsidies to local police forces or federal subsidies to anything or anybody. In 1942, the Supreme Court of the United States, in the case of Wickard versus Filburn, enunciated by then Justice Jackson said, quote, it is not lacking in due process for the federal government to exercise control over that which it subsidizes. And so the local police chiefs and their officers overwhelmed, understaffed, underpaid, and their lives virtually on the line each day, reach out in desperation for any sort of help they can get. They're getting it. One step at a time, the whole concept of local law enforcement is being eroded. And at the same time, we hear new cries and new demands, such as regionalize modernize, combine the efforts of, in King County, in Snohomish County, in Pierce County, and all across the country, the cry is out now to regionalize the police forces, to make them, quote, more efficient, end quote. Well, you know what that does. It just removes one more step away from local control, the whole local police constabulary. Some of you will recall that down in Tacoma two summers ago, there was a riot in what is called the hilltop section of Tacoma. Then Mayor Rasmussen moved actively and decisively and told his chief of police, stop it. They stopped it. Stopped it before it ever really became seriously effective. Then immediately the cry of police brutality came forth. Repression, prejudice, racism, and all the other epithets directed at the Tacoma Police Department. And then for the first time anywhere in the country, to my knowledge, there was a new wrinkle. A demand by the Civil Rights Commission for the federal government to place the Tacoma Police Department in a federal receivership. Oh, yes. The Tacoma Police Department was to be held in federal receivership under direct control of the Justice Department until it had been cleared of the charges directed against it by the very people who were causing the revolution in the first place. I might say that, to pat ourselves on the back, 
Had it not been for the efforts, the members of the John Birch Society in that area, that would have been the case. In a matter of a few hours, petitions were prepared and circulated, and thousands upon thousands of signatures on those petitions demanding that the federal government get its nose out of Tacoma's police problems and back to Washington were circulated, and those petitions were placed in the hands of Mayor Slim Rasmussen, and he stuck them right into the nose of the Justice Department and said, go. But you see, here, just down the road 30 miles, two years ago, the concept of putting a local police department in federal receivership was not only being discussed, the Justice Department actually attempted to bring it about. Now let's examine the various actors on this stage. As the man says when you walk into the ballpark, you can't tell the players without a scorecard. So we're going to try and provide you with a scorecard, or more accurately, a program. Because what we are seeing happen is not just an evolution of disjointed and unrelated events, but is a precise mechanism with various parts of the program being enacted in complete concert with other parts and various revolutionaries designed and designated to play certain roles. Well, the ones, of course, that draw the most attention are those whose job it is to draw attention to themselves. Now, that isn't too complex. The student rioters, the so-called racial agitators, the new left, as it likes to be called, their job is to draw attention to themselves. Their job is to build in the public mind such absolute and total revulsion that we don't care what happens to them. They want an immediate turnoff once you look at them. How do we know that? Well, Jerry Rubin says so. And Jerry Rubin is an expert at turning people off when they look at him. <laughs> Jerry Rubin has just recently written a book called Do It. And after wading through the unbelievable display of guttural vernacular that Mr. Rubin indulges himself in, he also has within its pages some very cogent messages for the informed. He said, we don't care what the issues are. He says, I go to meetings never really knowing what the issues are, and I could care less. The important thing is to develop the alienation. Alienation. There's another revolutionary book out doing quite well called The Strawberry Statement, now a movie written by James Simon Kunin. Mr. Kunin, a 19-year-old who's prepared to solve the problems of the world, or at least he was at the time he wrote the book, participated in the SDS attack on Columbia University. He was kind of the uh, theoretician to Mark Rudd. Mark, Mark Rudd, if you don't know, is today head of Weatherman II faction of the SDS, and we'll get into that in a minute. But Kieran was writing his book, The Strawberry Statement, and he's talking about alienation. 
purposeful alienation. Abby Hoffman says the same thing in his book, Woodstock. Now, why? Now, let's ask ourselves a question. Suppose you are a youth, as some of you are, and you have a grievance, which you think is legitimate, and you wish to have your grievance heard. You want people to sympathize and empathize with your position. So what do you do? Well, you do the logical thing. You let your hair grow long. You put on dirty, crummy clothes. You spew off the most unused and repulsive profanities you can conjure up. You go out into the streets. You shout. You wreak havoc. You break windows. Of course, everybody knows that when you're trying to win people to your side, you make the people you're trying to win to your side very mad at you. Don't you understand? Obviously, you're over 30. <laughs> okay, on one hand, we have those who develop alienation. Over in that Colosseum, right now, you have an alienation session going on. They, the Led Zeppelin, are alienating their audience against us. And then at the same time, you'll go home tonight and you'll watch the news and CBS, ABC, and NBC will alienate you against them. And if you want to get both barrels and you want to, you know, do it as a family, you can go down to a movie that's playing in town this week, or at least it was last week. Uh, and this one is designed to alienate both parents and students. Oh, yes, it says so right in the advertisement. One part of the advertisement says, this movie is for people under 30. It's about parents. They're cop-outs, hypocrites, etc., etc. The second part of the ad says, this movie is also for people over 30. It's about kids. We give them money, we give them good clothing, we give them schooling, and still they complain, etc., etc. So you see, the idea is alienate. Generate a gap. That's one segment. Then there's the legal arm, the American Civil Liberties Union. They come rushing in to lend legal credibility to anything that the obnoxious Jerry Rubens and Abby Hoffmans can conjure up in their depraved minds. Now, why is legal credibility so important? Ladies and gentlemen, it is, in my opinion, the most important thing of all. For you see, if you are going to destroy a civilization, there are a couple of things that are absolutely vital, and not the least among them is you must destroy the whole concept of justice. Let me repeat that. You must destroy in the public mind the concept of justice. Why do you suppose that the Chicago 7 put on the display that they did at their trial before Judge Julius Hoffman? 
And ladies and gentlemen, how can you go out and tell a young person today that Charles Manson got justice, no matter how bad he is, when the President of the United States stands before national television and says the man is guilty? If you're going to convince young people that they can't work within the system, you have to show them that the system is unjust. You must break down the whole concept of justice so that you and I and virtually everybody around us doesn't know what's right and wrong anymore. We lose our own sanity. That's why the ACLU and the National Lawyers Guild will waltz in and lend legal credibility to some of the most unbelievable things in the world. You think, well, gee, now here's the ACLU doing that. Aren't they trying to get adherence? Just the idea of a civil liberties union becomes ludicrous when nobody can define what is a civil liberty. <laughs> it becomes truly what Robert Welsh called 10 years ago, a world gone crazy. If you and I lose our concept of justice, how do we equate what is right and what is wrong? Who is acting legally and who is acting illegally? At what point in time does the law need to be broken? All of this is part of destroy the concept of justice. And then you take our young people over here and try to, to get an intelligent discussion after they listen to the message delivered by that band tonight and then try and sit down and ask them, what is justice? Do you think you will get an intelligent answer? Ask it of your friends and neighbors tomorrow when you go home tonight and see just how far this concept has been eroded and destroyed already. Next there are the venal politicians. Those who will jump on any bandwagon as long as they smell a vote. Who will be on both sides of every issue if given the opportunity. And goodness knows our country, our state, and our cities are plagued with venal politicians. I must admit that I have more respect for a Jerry Rubin than I do a Wes Allman. And I'll tell you why. Jerry Rubin, beast that he is, knows what he's doing. And he does it well. You see, Jerry Rubin comes on the Dick Cavett show, uh, all decked out in his uh, war paint and, and his judicial robes, and he gets the robes off and he stamps on them, and he just makes, everybody says, why, that nut? But Jerry Rubin, in one false swoop, alienates how many viewers? But what does a Mayor Allman type try to do? Well, every morning he gets up and he sniffs the wind. <laughs> and he tries to decide whose side am I on today he goes out to the airport to take a trip and here assembled in the uh, halls are a bunch of revolutionaries protesting something and uh, the mayor gets 
collared and he has to sing, We Shall Overcome with him. So he stands there and We Shall Overcome. He mouths the words. His heart really isn't in it because he knows it's not too popular. And he comes back and one day he says this, next day he says that. And I'm only, I'm only picking Mayor Holman because he's somebody that all of us are familiar with. We could name any one of a hundred of others just like him. It's a tragedy. And it's something that we can laugh at because we just don't like to cry. Or maybe we've already cried. And we laugh because we don't have any more tears. And it makes little difference whether you're discussing contemporary America or whether you're discussing collapsing Rome or whether you're talking about the French Revolution of 200 years ago. The ubiquitous venal politician is always right there, sniffing the wind, trying to decide on whose side he is today. Then we have the left-wing academicians. And I'm, I should say this. Some of you know how I feel about the, the teaching profession. I think it is the most honorable of all professions. But there's nothing more devastating to any honorable profession than those who prostitute it. And today we have the sociologists and the psychologists pounding themselves out of the academy, coming forth with their brain-twisting scheme saying, the problem with our police forces are that they are not sensitive. We will make them sensitive. We are masters at making people sensitive. We will give them training on sensitivity. We will psychoanalyze their id and make them fit. And so what is happening? All across the country, policemen are being marshaled into retreats to be sensitized. Oh, yes. Most of you, I think, are generally familiar with sensitivity training programs. They vary in their approaches, but they all have one thing in common. You bear your soul publicly. You make a public confession. Mr. Ed Dietman, Jr., former parole officer for the state of California and probably one of the foremost experts on this whole approach, <coughs> pointed out that as a parole officer in the state of California, he was ordered by his department head to participate in a sensitivity training session where his critic would be the man with the man that was reporting to him as a parolee. The same man whose job it was to report to Mr. Diekman was now taking Ed Diekman apart in sensitivity training sessions under orders from the head of the parole office of the state of California. I went up to a beautiful setting up above the city of Issaquah, and while there, I was informed that they are held weekly, weekly now, for the Seattle Police Department and surrounding departments, sensitivity training sessions conducted by various sociologists and psychologists 
from the University of Washington. So you see, the create such a feeling of confusion and inadequacy on the part of the police officers themselves that were even conditions ideal, they would find it difficult to do their job. Then there are the sanctimonious clergymen represented in the National Council of Churches and like organizations who would have us believe that Christ was a hippie. Oh, yes. You can go to church in any one of a score of churches in this town or any other town across the country next Sunday and hear precisely that message. And that you and I are Pharisees because we don't understand that Christ is every one of these revolutionaries, regardless of how obnoxious. And then finally... There is the federal establishment, the establishment, as the kids like to call it, more accurately, the conspiracy who ties it all together. And for what purpose, ladies and gentlemen? Well, it's really not a new purpose at all. How many times have men dreamed of ruling the world? How many men have dreamed that dream? Yet we think it's impossible. We can understand, we can agree with a former corporal paper hanger by the name of Adolf Schickelgruber dreaming of ruling the world. We can understand that. But we find it difficult to understand how people right now in our contemporary times could dream the same dream. We can understand an Alexander the Great weeping when he had no further worlds to conquer. We can understand the pomposity and the feeling of self-satisfaction that a Caesar would enjoy. And yet we find it difficult to believe that right now in our world and in our country there is a conspiracy on the part of men in high places who are doing precisely what all other conquerors before them have attempted to do, and that is try and rule the world. Now, if you're going to rule the world, you have a few logistics problems. Oh, yes. It's a big place. Take a look at a map. Can you imagine ruling the world with a little police department here, another one there? Hundreds of police departments in one state of one country in the entire world. There are hundreds of independent police departments in this state. And then you multiply that by all the other 50 states. And then you multiply that by all the other countries. You don't have that many people to put one man in each department. So what do you do? You centralize them. You regionalize them. You nationalize them. Oh, well, certainly. New idea? No. No, this was a very sophisticated concept by the time Alexander the Great was occupying countries in his long marches. It was certainly understood by the Romans. It's understood 
by the would-be rulers of the world today. You must nationalize every police force in the world, make them answerable not to the people that they serve, but to the masters for whom they are employed. Then you, in route to this, you must do a number of things. You must first disarm the police establishments that now exist, render them impotent, unable to do the job that is expected of them. Disarm the police? Preposterous, you say? Oh, no. Oh, no. It has been proposed in this city, as it has been proposed in every major city across the country, that is, as it is now generally the case in Washington, D.C. You disarm the local police so as to make their job impossible. All right? Now you have the police disarmed. But people want protection. They will demand protection. So you say, okay, we will have community patrols on the part of those people who keep the faith with their neighborhood. So you have Black Panthers patrolling black communities, and you have Brown Berets patrolling Mexican communities, and you have young Jews patrolling Jewish communities. But whose interests are they serving? And to whom do they answer? And if you stick your neck up and you say, I don't like the way you're doing it, Mr. Huey Newton, I don't like the way you're patrolling my community, Bobby Seale. What are your chances? Then you have sanctuaries, areas into which the regular police forces may not go. You build sanctuaries. All Kong must have sanctuaries, whether they be Viet type or Peace Kong whether it's in Southeast Asia or in Seattle. Sanctuaries are a necessary part of the whole revolution. The police must be invited on to the campus. Oh, yes. The police must be invited into a particular neighborhood. They go into Quella Riot, and the mayor says, oh, don't go in yet, don't go in yet. Remember Detroit? The Detroit Holocaust? That even made Watts pale? The mayor, Jerome Kavanaugh, said, no, no, we won't send in policemen yet. He'll just antagonize them. <laughs> and so sanctuary concepts were established, and they're being established all across the country. And then, for the remaining policemen who continually try to do a job because they understand they are the last best defense against tyranny, you ambush them, and you terrorize them, and you blow their brains out, and you booby trap them, and you do everything that Gary Allen said in the plan, and you do everything that happened to 12 of them just last week. And you step it up, and you step it up, and you step it up. And then you have what Saul Alinsky calls the real action. After all this has been done, you get what Saul Alinsky calls the real action. For those of you that do not know who Saul Alinsky is, 
Let me simply point out that Saul Alinsky has made a fortune as a professional revolutionary. He gives seminars on successful revolution. He is a consultant to successful revolutionaries. That's his business. Some people sell nails. Some people drill teeth. Saul Alinsky, seminars on revolution. And he knows what he's talking about. Thirty years ago, Saul Alinsky wrote a book called Reveille for Radicals. And he's been writing and training and speaking on the subject ever since. And he has a lot of noteworthy, noteworthy protégés, not the least among them, Mr. Cesar Chavez. But in a recent issue of Esquire, recent, I mean last month's edition, and for those of you that think I read Esquire because it's a girly magazine, you haven't read Esquire for a while. <laughs> Esquire is not a girly magazine, ladies. Oh, no. You'll look high and low for girly pictures in Esquire anymore. It is a very sophisticated avant-garde journal. And what appears in the pages of Esquire this month will eventually be pictured and depicted pictorially in life and look two months from now. Esquire is the theoretical icebreaker for the popular press today. No girly pictures. And in last month's Esquire, they devoted their whole issue to back to school sort of thing. Uh, you know, where do you go to riot this year? And they were discussing various facets of it. And one of the essays in there had to do with the Weatherman II faction of the SDS and its leadership, Mr. Mark Rudd. And it was a, quite a put-down of Weatherman too, pointing out how infantile some of their actions are. Not putting down the idea of revolution, you understand, but putting down their particular infantile approach. It's what Lenin, uh, Lenin called left-wing communism and an infantile disorder. <laughs> and in this particular article, Saul Alinsky, commenting on the Weatherman II faction, said, any sophisticated revolutionary knows that the real action is in reaction. Now, in case you're not that sophisticated a revolutionary to know what Saul Alinsky was talking about, allow me to interpret it. Everything that the revolution is doing is designed to bring about a specific reaction which is in itself the desired end. Uh, let me reduce it down one more level. You remember when Br'er Rabbit said that Br'er Bear begged with him and pleaded with him, Br'er Bear ripped me limb from limb, tear out my stomach and knock off my head, but please don't throw me in the briar patch. And Br'er Bear thought about it a minute and heaved him into the briar patch. And Br'er Rabbit laughing all the way as he scurries out into the briar patch. The real action is in reaction. All that is being done in the streets today, ladies and gentlemen, in the way of obnoxious activities or overt bloodletting and terrorism is designed to bring about a reaction on the part of you and people like you. 
People like you and your fellow citizens who are law-abiding, who like to spend Saturday afternoon working on the crabgrass and complaining about the news Saturday night, you're the ones that the conspiracy are counting on to impose the police state in America. Not the Jerry Rubens, not the Abby Hoffmans, not the Bobby Seals, not the Mark Rudds. You. Because you will demand law and order. You will demand that the federal government help if the local law enforcement agencies can't handle the job. When the local police is disarmed and unable to do its job, you will beg for the National Guard. You will cry for a federalization of your state, county, and city police forces. When your city's going up in smoke and fire, and you dare not venture out in the streets, you won't care where the law and order comes from as long as you get it. And so the kids who are over here blowing their minds out on what they call doing their thing are nothing more than cannon fodder. They will be the excuse. They will create the reaction that you and I are supposed to fall into. And they don't know it. What will happen to them? Why, they will be the first to go in this new world order that has been so patiently and carefully planned for us? Can you imagine for a second a banshee walking up in front of an NKVD agent and screaming pig and living to tell about it? <laughs> That's nothing more than stupid cannon fodder. But it's no more stupid than the parents and the good citizens who say, sock it to them. The real action is in the reaction. You watch it. All the signs are there. All the trial balloons are being floated. What can you do about it? Well, there's a number of things that you can and must do about it. First of all, you must understand it. And you won't get it in one talk, and you won't get it by osmosis, and you won't get it by trying to dope it out. You will get it if you'll do your homework. If you will provide for yourself that all-important touch of sanity. I remember in a speech delivered in 1965, Robert Welch stated, Right now, our most important job is to maintain our own sanity. And you know, when I first heard it, I chuckled. <laughs> Gee, that's a funny line. <laughs> and I heard it, and I heard it about five times, and then the full impact of what he was saying came down on me like a ton of bricks. Maintain your own sanity. And then he said something that, in my opinion, will endear him forever in the minds of God-fearing, law-abiding, learned people. He said, remember, remember above all things that morality sees further than intellect. Remember that morality sees further than intellect. Judge every action on one standard. Is it right or is it wrong? So you see, ladies and gentlemen, Maintaining our own sanity is not an easy task. But on the more practical level, you can become active in a support your local police committee. 
write your mayor and your city councilman, letting them know your position, that you are unalterably opposed to any federal assistance whatever for your police department under any pretext. Show films in your home. Get in your friends and neighbors. Let them view films like Anarchy USA, more deadly than war. Or host a speaker in your home that the support your local police committee will be happy to supply. Support your local police. Had we not gotten into this fight as early as we did seven years ago, I venture to say that a national police force would be a fiat accompli today, ladies and gentlemen. And finally, and in conclusion, let's tell it like it is. And the way I think it is, is that right now there are two things protecting you from tyranny. Two things. One, your right to own a firearm, if you choose. Secondly, the fact that you have a local police force. Lose those two, and it's all over. And daily, hourly, the attempts to disarm the American people and place them under a national police force are driving ahead. We cannot let it happen, ladies and gentlemen. Some say that if this happened, God willed it so, and that what we would get would be just retribution. I believe that an all-just God will look at the communist conspiracy and all their bestiality and say they worked harder for tyranny than the others did for freedom. And an all-just God would not intervene. As Ed Griffin says in his film, how much time did you give for freedom this week, last week, last month, or last year? If you are not willing to protect your right to life, liberty, and property, then you will lose it. And if you are willing or satisfied to sit by in the hope the vain, desperate hope that somebody will pack your load for you, then I, for one, have contempt for you. You do not deserve the freedom you enjoy unless you are willing to pack your share to whatever extent you are able to do so. Then you will not participate in the benefits of liberty. Our liberty was won for us at great cost of life and family, property. And I guarantee you, anything that you put into this fight, ladies and gentlemen, any effort or any time, any money, anything, is worth everything for your future and your children's future. God willing, you will have the vision to act on what you know you should do. For if you do not, you will live as a slave.